Welcome to Closing Crawl, a fan-made Clone Wars recap podcast. I'm Matt Hayward in Burlingame, California. This is Drew in Chicago, and as this podcast recording approaches midnight, the closer I am to doing a B1 impression. This is Jared Wadsworth coming to you from the San Francisco Bay Area, where I hatched from the big egg in the field. This is McCormick in Chicago, and I stopped at the 7-Eleven gas station on my way home from work instead of my traditional Friday way into work, uh, but I still bought my donut and ate it in the car ride home. I'm not proud of it, but I'm not going to lie to you, our fans. You deserve better. Longtime fans of our podcast are aware that there's a delay between production, so while this episode will be released in April, it is being recorded in December of 2020. So there has just been an exciting batch of news that bear on the Star Wars universe. And certainly the most important batch of that news is Warwick Davis is coming back to play Willow, you guys. Willow. <laughs> I'm honestly extremely excited about that. He's a peck with an acorn pointed at you. Uh, peck is oppressor terminology, and I'll thank you not to use it. Yeah, that's that's fair. We got a whole lot of Star Wars content announced, mostly Disney Plus shows, but a lot of Disney Plus shows. So the first show that was announced was Rangers of the New Republic, a show set in the Mandalorian time frame with uh, Jean Favreau uh, doing the executive producer showrunner duties. And also with that is the show Ahsoka, starring Rosario Dawson with Dave Filoni uh, doing the show running and executive producer duties. Uh, these two shows are both set in the time frame of The Mandalorian. Uh, we'll be running approximately concurrently on Disney Plus sometime in 2022 and apparently tie into each other. So what do we think? I think uh, one is a police procedural <laughs> and one is a coming of age story. The police procedural, it's just going to be a lot of paperwork. So they're actually not going to be out on the beat. It's just them <laughs> filling everything out after the fact to be like, uh, these forms. Am I right? It's literally Brooklyn Nine-Nine. But with Dave Filoni's X-Wing pilot and whoever the actor is, whose name I've forgotten, who is the other X-Wing pilot, who are just space cops, but just <laughs> at base. I don't believe you've forgotten it. I believe you never knew it because stuff doesn't leave your brain like that. <laughs> <laughs> We're referring to Mandalorian Season 2, Episode 2 for the Space Cops. I'm just stoked that that Mandalorian episode was absolutely a backdoor pilot for the Ahsoka show. As one of the forerunners of the uh, Ahsoka is the best character in Star Wars clan, uh, I am so excited we're getting an Ahsoka Tano show. Uh, based on her Mandalorian appearance, I assume we're getting Grand Admiral Thrawn, which, hey, that's also great. These are two of the things I would like to see the most in Star Wars television. Having Dave Filoni running an Ahsoka show that's going to have Grand Admiral Thrawn in it is everything I could have asked for. Also, I don't think Drew knows what backdoor means. Hello, what have we here? No, backdoor pilot is absolutely the industry term for that thing that happened. You are technically correct. I think that was a front door pilot. That was that was just the pilot. But also, you're right, Matt. You don't hire Rosario Dawson for a one-off. You don't hire Jeremy Bullock to play Boba Fett for 30 seconds of screen time into a movie. <laughs> Royal Shakespearean actor. <laughs> also, have you seen the set pictures from uh, Return of the Jedi with him with his helmet off? And he's just got like, he's like the biggest nerd with a giant mustache hanging around talking to Carrie Fisher. It's disturbing. Holy crap, we get an Ahsoka show. 
Disney Plus is giving us everything we've ever wanted. Uh, also, a lot of Marvel stuff that sounded kind of okay. Uh, She-Hulk, great. There's basically no joy in the universe, so when the only joy I get is, hey, there's going to be an Ahsoka television show, I, I just have to roll with it. Yeah. Moving on, what other uh, Star Wars content do we get, Jared? Break it down for us. We also get Andor about Diego Luna's character Cassian Andor from Rogue One. Uh, the show is also coming in 2022. There's a trailer for it. And by trailer, I mean they have some random behind-the-scenes stuff and nothing actually from the show. And while they did not specify a time frame for this, I'm going to assume it's before Rogue One. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> Quick question, though. Is there another show with the character's name in it that is A-N-D-O? Yes, there is. But they are the last letters, not the first letters, for <gasps> Lando. What? An event series, by which we mean this is going to be four episodes and that's all you're getting. And we haven't announced who is playing Lando, so give me your best guess. Who's playing Lando Calrissian? I'm hoping it's James Gunn and it is just an episode that's like Project Runway style about capes. I was going to suggest Tom Holland. <laughs> He's got the range for it. Especially if he's doing it like his lip sync battle appearance where he does Umbrella. Like, I think that energy would work great in Lando Calrissian. Agreed. YouTube it if you haven't seen it. I mean, it has to be Donald Glover, right? I suspect Donald Glover is at a point where he kind of does what he wants to do, and maybe he doesn't want to do it. There also might be a contract that just says, like, hey, the next two Lando projects, Ooh. and the TV show just happens to be a project. Maybe both Donald Glover and Billy D. Williams will be in it. Maybe it's an anthology series where we get four different Landos in four different episodes. <gasps> oh my gosh, like a young Lando Adventures. I would watch that. Speaking of anthology series, uh, we have Star Wars Visions, uh, a series of animated Schwartz. Huh? Leave it in, Schwartz. <laughs> May the Schwartz be with you. <laughs> yes, the Schwartz. <laughs> Star Wars Visions, a series of animated shorts, quote, through the lens of the world's best Japanese anime creators. Tetsuo Kaneda! Close quote. Coming in 2021. Also coming, we have The Bad Batch, a spinoff of this very show, The Clone Wars. Which, curiously, we will not be making a podcast about. <laughs> Based on the trailer, I absolutely want to do a show about that show. Yeah, no doubt. How's the pie? It's so good. But it was a good trailer. Yep. It's a good trailer. It's a good trailer. I have a quick question, though. Is it a good trailer? No. Okay. <laughs> also coming, Obi-Wan Kenobi, starring Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan Kenobi, and surprise, Hayden Christensen as Darth Vader. I don't care for that. Yeah, Ewan McGregor, I agree. Just not that good. <laughs> You guys are making it really hard. I'm going to say what I was going to say, which is, I hope the fans give Hayden Christensen a chance. I No, 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 no. Don't, don't get me wrong. I, like, I think Hayden Christensen is a good actor, and I would absolutely like to see him in more stuff. But I don't understand narratively how you get Darth Vader into a Star Wars show when it was very obvious that they're meeting on the Death Star. I sense something. Presence I've not felt since was the first time that they had met since Obi Wan wiped the floor with him and dumped him into a lava pit. You 
with my brother Anakin. They don't have to meet. It just, you know, cuts away to stuff going on. How could you have all of Clone Wars without Anakin crossing paths with Grievous? Like, they just wouldn't work. It's basically impossible, I agree. We still haven't gotten to, like, the one that I'm most excited about. Before we get there, though, let's talk about Star Wars A Droid Story, a new animated movie for Disney Plus that is being co-produced by Lucasfilm Animation and ILM and will feature R2-D2 and C-3PO and another droid. If it's not IG-88, then I'm out. Also coming up in the future and the past, I suppose, technically, is The Acolyte, a quote-unquote mystery thriller series, uh, which is set in the High Republic era, the new Lucasfilm transmedia, hey, we need to tell stories in Star Wars that don't mess with our movie plans, so we're doing them 300 years ago, uh, era that uh, launches in 2021. I'm excited to see them do Star Wars at such a great remove from the Skywalker saga. The Mandalorian kind of started out that way, and it seems like it's getting slowly pulled into the gravitational well. That's the ball. Don't fly toward it, Han! Of the Skywalker saga, so I hope they can keep this other one apart from it. I don't know. Uh, I feel like the High Republic, unless Yoda has just the most luscious mane of hair, <laughs> I just don't, I don't think it's going to do it for me. But you know what? In Dave Filoni, we trust. Uh, well, he has not been announced as part of the TV show, but on the upside, we're going to have like eight books and nine kids books and three comic books set in the High Republic era by the time the TV show comes out. So we will already know whether we're supposed to hate it or not by then. Shizor and the Yuzhan Vong. I don't see how it could possibly go wrong. Ooh, we could get Vergeer and Zenoma Seacott. That would totally fit in. That's even the right time frame. <sighs> The final Star Wars project that was announced is the next Star Wars theatrical film, uh, Patty Jenkins directing Star Wars Rogue Squadron. Yes. So my favorite parts of the Star Wars movies was the first assault on the Death Star in A New Hope and the assault on the second Death Star in Return of the Jedi. And if Patty Jenkins has just a dogfighting in space movie then i'm here for it in the just the best way and i love rogue squadron patty jenkins is great i'm very very optimistic about this did you see the the teaser video they did with patty jenkins i did yeah so so yes so she you know she talks about uh, her dad being in the air force uh, an f4 fighter pilot they don't really let, let women make uh apparently top guns but she gets to make her top gun with star wars stuff and Let's do this thing. I'm a big fan of the uh, of the old Rogue Squadron uh, books and comic books. I will note that on Twitter, Patty Jenkins totally name-checked Michael Stackpole as a, in a thanks for the inspiration, stuff, <gasps> which means we're definitely not using any of that, but uh, well. at least she's aware of it. So, Baron Suntier Fell, coming soon to a theater near you, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. I mean, like, let's face it, a Red Baron... TIE fighter pilot like who who doesn't want more of that this is going to be great i want wedge antilles i want derek hobby clivian i want Tycho selchu i want all these people on a movie screen being Porkins. <laughs> <laughs> dak jack porkins we all want jack but i just want more super awesome space combat like in uh, return of the jedi i want B-wings, I want A-wings, I want Y-wings, I just want more cool spaceships, I want 
tie interceptors, tie defenders. Let's go for it. I hope at the end of the movie that they just like zoom out and it's just Wedge on top of a doghouse and he's been a <laughs> Red Baron all along. And it all comes back to my upfront comment from last week that you guys didn't want me to talk about because Snoopy always has a root beer with Bill Malden on VE Day. It's a circle. It's an absolute circle. At least there is symmetry. Matt, you're cutting this right. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, we have a contest running on our Twitter, which is of the things we listed, one of them is made up. Add us on closing at closing crawl on Twitter with the one you think is made up to win a prize. <laughs> This week, we review Season 2, Episodes 9 and 10, Grievous Intrigue and The Deserter. For Grievous Intrigue, uh, this episode's Jedi fortune cookie is for everything you gain, you lose something else. Our radio announcer tells us that while the Republic victories outweigh their losses, the Separatists are making advances in the Outer Rim. No one knows where Grievous and his thousands of droids will strike next, until now. We open on Grievous' ship boarding a Star Destroyer being led by Jedi Master Eeth Koth. Grievous and some commando droids take hold of the bridge and capture Koth. Grievous sends a message to the Jedi Council, which Yoda, Obi-Wan, Skywalker, and some space-timed, trademarked, other Jedi are watching. Grievous proceeds to Abu Ghraib Koth on camera while the Jedi watch in horror. Koth hides a hand signal in the transmission, and the Jedi quickly run to capture Grievous and rescue Koth. Skywalker hyperspaces in during battle, going unnoticed, and boards Grievous' ship while Obi-Wan acts as bait to lure Grievous to his ship. But Grievous knows his enemies well and has anticipated all of this. Despite a surprise attack, Anakin and Adigalia rescue Koth while Grievous blows up Obi-Wan's ship and escapes to the planet's surface. Anakin picks up Obi-Wan on Grievous' hangar bay and heads back to their ship to plan the landing party. I thought that perhaps Eth is trying to get captured. He's holed up on the bridge. He has nine clones in defensive positions. And they just let Grievous and his droids waltz into the bridge. They don't really get a shot off until about 15 seconds into this fight. Eth's combat skills seem very poor. Three times in a row, he tries to stab Grievous. And three times in a row, he gets zapped in the back by an droid. The intro crawl says the Jedi can never predict where Grievous will strike next. Until now. So certainly there was no prediction in him striking Eeth Koth. So I feel like this was a honeypot. I don't think the episode actually gives strong support for that. If we skip ahead to when he gets rescued, he is surprised and upset that people came to rescue him instead of going after Grievous. I'm going to make the counter argument there, Jared, that the Jedi, as we know, perception is their dumb stat. Without knowing that he would be trying to signal them, there was no chance in hell that they would ever be clued into the fact that he was throwing hand signals at them. Like, just as an organization, (laughs) it is impossible that they would ever recognize that. So it has to be a plan. I hate to to burst your bubble again, but the person who recognizes that is Clone Commander Wolf, not any of the Jedi. Oh, I'm aware, but I still think that it was very much a... I don't think the clones are, like, super savvy themselves, so... It's entirely possible that we all are right in the fact that 
it wasn't a plan for Anakin and Obi-Wan to capture him, but maybe it was for Master Koth. And uh, Commander Wolfie has lost an eye since we last saw him. So with one eye, he's he's more perceptive than all the Jedi <laughs> masters assembled. Well, when you lose one sense, it makes the other stronger. <laughs> oh, can, can we go back? Can we go back to talking about like back. what? When when we have to go back, we have to go back. We yeah, have to go when, back. when Eve gets captured, I'd like to say that he definitely doesn't put up a very good fight. And going back to our original Matt Hayward's greatest comment ever of outside the box thinking, as soon as Grievous cuts through the the bulkhead, and then they hear someone take a running start, like <laughs> Darth Maul absolutely would have force pushed that back onto somebody. <laughs> So outside the box thinking is definitely not a Zabrak like racial trait at all. I've got a comment about the video that Grievous sends through. It starts off with Grievous standing over the still a little bit of life in it body of Master Koth. And there's a bunch of younglings in the room and like they don't pause the video and Yoda is just like, hey, maybe get the kids out of here. They just let it play out. And then, like, the kids shriek in horror when Grievous decides to basically just stun stab Master Koth in the back. To be fair, it was enhanced interrogation, not torture. Yeah, still kids. I know. It's the worst take your youngling to work day ever. HR is going to hear about this. Well, why were they even there in the first place? It's part of the Jedi White House tour. I assume it's just the fact that, hey, we we built these new models for an episode that's coming up, and we're just throwing in all of our new Jedi models right here in this scene. One of the kids is named Ran Deezy. Is he an Aes Sedai? Uh, I don't think so. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Wheel I was only time. laughing internally until Drew decided to let it all out. Uh, I mean, this is like D- DJ Rand Deezy, right? <laughs> DJ. <laughs> it does sound like a DJ name. I, I can't argue with you there. Rocking, rocking and rolling. Down to the beach, I'm strolling. So Anakin lights out to rescue Ethkoth, and he's got another Jedi Master in his little shuttle with him. She has pronounced doe eyes, and then remember the Ben Stiller scene, and there's something about Mary where he got, like, stuff in his hair? Um, that <laughs> times a thousand. Stuff. Who, who is this Jedi Master? Jedi Master Adi Galia, a member of the Jedi High Council who appears in Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, and in reused footage from Star Wars Episode One in Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. She's uh, one of the more prolific EU Jedi Council members at this point. She's appeared in a bunch of books, a bunch of comic books, some video games, such as Jedi Starfighter, Jedi Starfighter 2, Jedi Power Battles. Everybody likes Adi Galia. Adi Galia is also uh, one of the voices of all of the Jedi from Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. And the last voice of all the Jedi we will meet in the series The Clone Wars. Adi Galia is voiced by Angelique Perrin, who is uh, mostly a radio announcer. Um, she also does uh, some other voice work. She is apparently best known as the voice host of BET's Comic View, uh, or at least in the past when that was a thing that was on. 
there were some new ships in here as well. Yeah, when we get to the uh, space part of the show, we actually get some new ship models that are appearing for the first time. Uh, the Separatists get a new ship, a destroyer-class ship, which is bigger than their frigates. It's very exciting. Uh, we can now have like 19 different names to call the two different Separatist ships. Uh, and the Republic gets a new uh, light cruiser, the Arquitens-class light cruiser, which notably, uh, if you're a newer fan, uh, is the ship that is used by Moff Gideon in Season 2 of The Mandalorian. Uh, although technically that's like an Imperial refit version of the ship that they rebuilt. The- I really liked, as we're getting into the space battle and talking about the ships, when Anakin does ultimately hyperspace jump in, the final stretch of it was pretty cool. You know, a lot of times it just seems like the ship just kind of comes out of hyperspace at like a dead standstill. But the way that this was shot, it almost seems like they kind of pilot like somehow the last or at least he is capable of piloting, you know, the last couple hundred yards of it. One of the huge pros of this show is just how cinematic it feels sometimes. And I love that shot. I thought it was amazing. The the point of view shot where he's flying along the the edge of the ships going through the fleet is fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Very Return of the Jedi. It was wonderful. Like it may, it took me right back to being a kid watching Return of the Jedi and just being like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Uh so speaking of all the new new models we've got here, did anyone notice? That Grievous has paid for the flame decal upgrade package on his tactical droids. <laughs> like this, this red tactical droid has this like diagonal kind of like a robot tribal aesthetic. It's like red and kind of blocky. This particular uh, T-Series droid appearance is uh, voiced by Matt Lanter, who is also Anakin's voice. So he totally gets to talk to himself in, in this episode. Why are you talking to yourself? Why are you talking to yourself? Why are you cutting your own arm off? <laughs> it's sort of a Jedi thing, hands and feet always getting cut off. It's these lightsabers, they're quite dangerous. When Grievous is fighting Obi-Wan, he says, I am not in this war for Dooku's politics. What have you to show for all your power? What have you to gain? The future. A future where there are no Jedi. And he says uh, an interesting thing, which mirrors what he said in the initial, you know, uh, space-time call into Yoda. I do not care about your politics. I do not care about your republic. I only live to see you die. I'd actually like to tie it back to what we saw in Grievous's murder palace. Obviously, he is some sort of like weird Michael Jordan, objectivist, Wolf Larsen type character who only believes in He's like the only person in the universe and the Jedi are like a personal insult to his drive to be the best. So like, you know, they win the genetic or force lottery and he can never compete with them. So they're just like a personal insult, like uh, Lex Luthor from all-star Superman, where it just, you know, like as long as Superman exists, Lex Luthor can never be, you know, like the greatest human and as long as the Jedi exist, Grievous can never be like the pinnacle of what a, like an individual can be and can do in the Star Wars universe. That would certainly explain his like fetishization of the Jedi and collecting of trophies, etc. 
That would, and that is now, uh, that's now officially my canon. This is the first time we've actually seen Grievous have some sort of motivation. In the Gendy Kartikovsky shorts, he was basically just this force of nature, right? All the other Jedi, like that the Jedi were scared of, um, that he couldn't be stopped. And now we actually start to get some like actual characterization for him that kind of explains who he is and why he's doing this, as opposed to just this boogeyman who looks cool. So speaking of motivations, we get a really weird character beat here from Anakin, where Anakin and uh, what is that? A- Ali Galia? Adi Galia. They've rescued ETH and they get a call from Obi-Wan who says, hey, Grievous is heading back your way. And Anakin says basically to Adi Galia, all right, you go engage Grievous. I'll get ETH back to the ship. And I'm like, this is the <laughs> least Anakin thing I have ever seen. Well, what was going on there? Sadly, I think what's going on there is just a constraint that Star Wars Episode Three uh, requires that General Grievous and Anakin Skywalker meet for the first time above Coruscant during that movie. So, at last, we meet for the first time for the last time. And so Anakin and General Grievous cannot be on screen together at any point during the Clone Wars. Wait, seriously? Is that what's going on? Yep, that's, that's what's going on. That's insane. Have... Have Anakin and Grievous never fought each other? Uh, they have not thus far, and uh, we've even had this discussion once before, I think. Was I asleep at that point? That yeah. I don't remember. <laughs> There's like an 80% chance the answer to that is yes. Yeah our, yeah, our podcast is best when not binged because we just recycle the same 20% every five episodes. It's a callback. We're actually uh, Seth MacFarlane. It's super meta. Yeah, super meta. <laughs> But yes, so we, we have to write around the fact that, that Anakin and Grievous can't be on screen at the same time, even though they clearly know who each other are. That makes a lot more sense, because I was like, wouldn't Anakin just be like, Eddie? Chomping at the bit. You're, you, you obviously outrank me, but I'm going to order you around so I can go do something insanely dangerous and like psychotic. That moment really clanged with me, and I, I guess I'm glad that I don't have to stretch my brain any further to understand what was happening there. We should have gotten something truly outrageous because the, the credited writer for this episode is Ben Edlin, creator of The Tick. And, you know, with that kind of mind power, I feel like we should have gotten, uh, I don't know, weird droids that think they're superheroes or something. We did get a pretty awesome Spaceballs reference when the B1s are heading for the escape pods and Grievous just like grabs one and tosses him. Uh, I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> Obi-Wan is going to go down to the surface and Anakin is left behind to quote, command the space battle unquote, which might explain why Yularen was so salty a couple episodes ago. <laughs> like who's in charge up here? Uh, I think the, the, certainly the impression we have been given throughout this episode is that the Jedi are in charge uh, whenever they're around. And so Jedi general outranks basically everyone. But Yularen does make it through the clone wars, right? Jared, I'm, I'm specifically addressing this to you. Doesn't he end up with, like, the ISB? Yes. Wolf Yularen is a character who appears in A New Hope in a white uniform in the back of the room when Darth Vader is choking people for not having appropriate levels of faith. That makes a lot more sense. I was like, you know, he hung out with the Jedi, and you would think he had some personal relationships, but if I just kept getting sandbagged by Jedi for an entire war, I also might be interested in like having them hunted down and murdered. (laughs) 
there, the, there is actually a weird bit that happened. The reason Wolf Yalarn is an admiral in this show is because he has a white uniform in that scene in Star Wars, and Dave Filoni assumed that meant he was a grand admiral. Uh, and so it just made him an admiral in this show. And then someone explained that, no, he's an ISB colonel in in, in our established lore for what happens in episode four. And so there's some Whoa. busted down to colonel. <laughs> there's some weird sort of fanfic level stuff that got written to explain how he left the Navy and joined the ISB several ranks down. Yeah, I, I, I my headcanon is he's just sick and tired of Jedi and going sick house on them makes him. He's just like, you know what? I made my money. I got my rank. This one's for this one's for Wolf. Yeah, screw those guys. They're the worst. <laughs> Let's talk about our Jedi fortune cookie and how it meets up to what occurs in this episode. So as a reminder, at the beginning of the episode, we're told for everything you gain, you lose something else. To me, this seems like a, a, a nice aphorism, but I am less sure how it connects to the episode. For every Jedi Master you gain, you lose thousands of clone troopers, obviously. (laughs) So our next episode is The Deserter. This episode's Jedi Fortune Cookie is, It is the quest for honor that makes one honorable. Our radio announcer summarizes the last episode and adds that Obi-Wan is closing in on his target on the planet's surface. Grievous's transmitter is destroyed, so they have to make their way towards another escape pod in hopes its transmitter is working. Grievous rides in comfort on the back of a local beast, along with all of his luggage, uh, like a scene of the princess in Spaceballs. What's this? I said take only what you need to survive. My industrial strength hair dryer. And I can't live without it! All while the droids start dropping like flies due to their power fading. Obi-Wan and Rex and their respective teams split up to cover more ground. Rex gets shot by a sniper and is taken to a farm intended to. His troopers leave him behind to mend while they continue their search for Grievous. Meanwhile, Obi-Wan is getting closer to the other escape pod, and Rex's clones converge on the same spot. Back on the farm, it turns out the farmer's wife's husband is none other than the eponymous Deserter, which is not the name of a Gordon Ramsay baking show. The Deserter and Rex argue about clone oaths and duty, but the cute kids and his family start to win Rex over. Unfortunately, the kids stumble across the third escape pod and Jar Jar the droids awake. Rex and the deserter fend them off. Obi-Wan and the clones attack Grievous, but he manages to escape. Obi-Wan calls Rex to get to the chopper! Rex informs the deserter that he still thinks he's a piece of crap deserter, but his memory may be lacking due to his injuries and he might not remember to report him. In the last episode, we had some insight into General Grievous's character for the first time. And at this point, I'd like to ask you guys, is General Grievous a good villain? My initial impulse is no, at least uh, according to Aristotelian poetic theory. I-, I think I look for the villain to be someone that challenges and like, casts light on the protagonist's actions and has similar characteristics to the protagonist, but misdirected. Grievous is just a little bit too much of a doofus for me, I think. He he seems to be good at taking out secondary Jedi. 
Like, wasn't there the uh, Mon Call Apprentice? Not a hard web. Nandor the Relentless. Yes. I guess my point is, in like narrative structure, there's man versus nature, man versus man, and man versus himself, right? Like, those are the traditional protagonist-antagonist um, story structures. I always thought, like, this was a man versus man. Like, you have the Jedi versus the dark side, you know, light side versus dark outside, a very Manichaean uh, struggle. But, like, the more I think about it, this is very much a, like, a man versus himself. Like, the Jedi are sort of cannibalizing themselves. So, like, the Jedi are the protagonist and the antagonist. I can't figure out whether Grievous is a good antagonist or not. And I kind of come down on the same side that Hayward did. And that he's not a particularly compelling antagonist because we don't really know like what his motivations are. And then we saw a little bit of it, but it's still not, you know, it's not exactly like Professor X and Magneto, right? Where you have, you know, like the same person, but skewed and coming at it from like a little bit of a different angle. Grievous is the henchman character from from a lot of other shows. And, and that's the role he fills in in episode three, Revenge of the Sith, like he's not there to be a huge major villain to to defeat. Uh, Obi Wan winds up dealing with him pretty easily in in that movie and in the middle of the movie. Uh, it's just we need someone for him to fight who has some lightsabers. Um, I think if he were a good guy, he would be considered a sidekick at best. Yeah, but you can have compelling villains who are obstacles, right? Like Starscream. For all of his, you know, like, he's a very, you know, he's no giant robot, but he's still, like, a pretty compelling character. Like, he has motivations, and, you know, he's constantly fighting against his own inadequacies, right? Uh, you can have the, uh, like, lesser mutants, like the Blob or Toad, who are there just to get, like, kicked around, but they can still be relatively compelling um, obstacles for heroes. And Grievous, for all of his you know, sort of uh, prowess up until, up until these two episodes, I never really cared about him, I guess is my point. The last episode is probably the first time we get him explaining why he has any reason to be fighting whatsoever. Um, it's, it's good. We needed that. I'm glad we got it in there, uh, but there's no real justification for it. We, we don't explain why he's like that. I'm not sure we ever explain why he's like that, even if we throw in uh, expanded universe stuff from, from around this time. Yeah, I guess my point is we finally got a little bit of an insight into him and it makes him sort of interesting. And I appreciate you guys helping me unpack this. He also has the problem that that as Star Wars fans, we're okay with villains who are obstacles and not characters as long as they look cool. If you're a Boba <laughs> Fett or a Darth Maul, we will stand you uh, for years. But what what do we know about Boba Fett really for the first three movies? He's got five minutes of total screen time and two lines. But you know we, he's like we got disintegrations. We, that's that's a whole world unto itself. And he's not particularly tasty to Sarlax. <laughs> And he's uh, smart, right? He goes out with the trash. He gets very little screen time, but we establish him as a canny operator on the par of evil Han Solo. Yeah. And, you know, I guess for Grievous, we establish him as coughing and hitting battle droids. And and I think in this episode, we see they can do characterization because, you know, spoilers, like, cut. Um, you know, for the first time, we have an action sequence uh, with some real stakes to it. Uh, and we've just, we've met these characters for like five minutes. And so then we have, you know, Grievous, who we've seen a lot 
and we still don't have any insight into him and we don't really care other than the fact that he has lightsabers and he killed my boy Nandor. So I was a little confused because one of the clones uh, like t- touches the side of the ship and he's like, it's still warm. And I was like, uh, yeah, because the ship just landed like two minutes before yours did. Uh, otherwise, why did you take so long to form a landing party and get planet side? They all land in one spot and they don't know where the bad guys are. But Obi-Wan announces that we're going to go to where the big ship crashed, not to where the escape pods went, because we don't want to have to find all these little escape pods. And we landed at neither of those places. Yeah. <laughs> Once again, perception, the Jedi dumps that. So I have a, a question similar to the, has Dooku installed escape slides in the bridges of all Republic or all separatist cruisers? Uh, so Grievous hops into this escape pod and he emerges with a fantastic Dracula cape. <laughs> Are there just Dracula capes in all escape pods in the separatist alliance? <laughs> Certainly on his ships. <laughs> yeah, Grievous has got to keep a bunch of spare capes around because he's always taking it off and losing it in fights, but he always gets it back. It's part of his costume, so he's got to have spares. Like, it, Grievous must have multiple Lando Calrissian closets. He uses it very effectively in his, his uh, final like fight with Obi-Wan. That's not just, it's not just for looking good. It's also a functional battle cape, um, and I'm not sure that Lando's ever were. As a past student of, of swordsmanship, I really wish that uh, Grievous used the the cloak over arm fencing style uh, at least once somewhere in his one of his appearances, because that would have just made me really happy. God, wouldn't that be fantastic? All right, Dave Filoni, uh, for, for one of your future projects, we need that to happen. Calling on you, because you're definitely listening to this podcast right now. It's Jared's going to use his one Dave Filoni wish on that. <laughs> He already gave me the Ahsoka show. I didn't even have to use a wish. So, Jared, you fool. You wish for a million Dave Filoni wishes. That's your first wish. Oh, oh you no. failed. What, what have I done? <laughs> Jared, Ronnie, do run, run, Ronnie, more! Let's, let's animation nerd out here and talk about the uh, color palette when they land on the planet, uh, Seleucami. And they're following. Did anybody else notice just how beautiful this was? Like it wasn't, um, you know, the traditional Disney house style has sort of more increasingly like tended towards uh, like pastels and very bright popping colors. Uh, And this was much more muted, neutral and natural shades. And it was absolutely stunning. I know uh, probably John Crickfaluzzi rightfully canceled but still, he had a he had an excellent post like 15 years ago on his blog about uh, color palettes and um, using, you know, like the full range of colors in animation. And I feel like this absolutely would have been a very very like solid addition to his argument. Like this was this was just stunning. And um, kudos to the animators for really branching out and doing something bold and. Uh, wonderful. What's a blog? Is that is that like a, a kind of a TikTok? <laughs> it is, but with but with but with words instead of. Uh, Wasn't the blog an X Men villain? <laughs> Nothing can stop the blog. 
<laughs> it's it's like a Substack, but you don't have to subscribe to it. Uh, I, <laughs> uh, so speaking of using all the color palettes, did anyone else notice that Clone Crease has the luxurious golden locks of a Senate guard? <laughs> <laughs> I did. I was just like, I don't know who that guy is, but uh, his uh, maybe like one of the hoses in his uh, birthing crash got kinked a little bit, and he's definitely a weirdo. We've got a million clones. We've only got so many pre-built hairstyles. We have to use all of them (laughs) in order to get enough combinations. I just like to think that he's wearing a toupee. (laughs) (laughs) Rex is shot by a sniper. And we end up at a farm. So I thought this was interesting because I was not prepared for there to be general agrarian labor in the Star Wars universe. I mean, I guess the Lermans do the same thing. But we're at a farm. And I mean, Luke Skywalker, he lives on a farm. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Touche with your like uber canonicity, Jared. (laughs) Sorry, I'll stop. But it was a moisture farm. He wasn't actually like tilling the ground and planting seeds. <laughs> it's not a, not a it, nerf herder, is what you're saying. It was literally just fields of Cardi B, as far as the eye can see. That's going to get us the explicit tag. <laughs> Only if we insert the drop here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, it's just Ben Shapiro reading the lyrics. I was just going to say <laughs> insert drop of Ben Shapiro here. <laughs> but don't. Please, please don't. Uh, if you're a Ben Shapiro fan, uh, sorry, go find another podcast. You're not welcome. Yeah, here. please unsubscribe and go get some psychiatric help. Well, ha- well ha- hold, hold on. Don't don't unsubscribe. Just, <laughs> just stop just listening. Stop listening. <laughs> stop listening. Yes. We find the farmer who is a Twi'lek woman named Sue, and she has a couple of uh, young children with her. Okay, wait. Rest- hold on. I, I, I need to interrupt you because at one point the uh, the clones uh, say these animals are domesticated and where there's a farm, there's usually a farmer. And that was literally the most perceptive thing anyone on the show has ever done, ever. <laughs> yeah, was, that was pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a huge leap of logic, but that clone is the Sherlock Holmes of this uh, of the clone army. Well, to be fair, he does say usually. He's giving himself <laughs> yeah. really a lot of wiggle room to get out. <laughs> Well, at least he said usually and not actually. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> also, th- Sue is thick as hell. And uh, like I can only assume that R. Crumb came back from the grave to draw her character model. Uh, she also uh, she has an outrageous French accent. I told you to stay in the house. <laughs> Right, well, that is, is, is what we have established for the Twi'leks. They all have outrageous French accents. Equally at home in comedy and drama, theater, film, and television. Her, her outrageous French accent is uh, provided by Kara Pifko, who is uh, probably currently most notable for being recurring character Paige Novick in Better Call Saul. Uh, if you're me, you know her as Kelly Chambers from Mass Effect 2 and 3. And if you watch children's television show around the time we were growing up, you might know her as Kara from Sharon Lois and Bram's Elephant Show. No? No one? You didn't all watch Canadian children's television? 
Um, also wild is that uh, her kids' voices, just to fill about, uh, the older child, Shea, is voiced by Nika Futterman, who is normally a Saj Ventress on this show, playing a kid here, just for the heck of it. Uh, the younger child, Jack, is Kath Susie, who is one of the more uh, prolific voice actors who has appeared on this show, and in, in a tiny role here. Um, they will do other parts in both Clone Wars and Rebels, which probably we'll mention when we get there. Um, she is the female smuggler PC character in the Old Republic MMO. Um, <gasps> and uh, notable other characters in her uh, repertoire include Kubert Farnsworth from Futurama, uh, the twins Phil and Lil from Rugrats, Kanga in Winnie the Pooh for the last 20-some years, Linka, uh, the one with the power of wind from uh, Captain Planet and the Planeteers, uh, and Janine Melnitz from the real Ghostbusters cartoon. This is this is someone who is overqualified for the part of a child with three to four lines. I was just listening to the Greatest Generation podcast that uh, Matt turned me on to, and uh, I completely forgotten that Ferengi uh, shed their lobes. Uh, <laughs> I assume at puberty because these twi like well they're half clone half Twi'leks. One Twi'lek has perfectly normal leku i guess and one has stunted leku so i was just like uh do, do twi'leks also shed there i, I wonder the same thing jack the the young son uh twi'lek kind of has a bobcut leku it's, it's not it's above the shoulders <laughs> it's it's the 1920s <laughs> he's a flapper we have seen other Twi'lek kids who definitely had shorter like you. I don't think we've seen anyone as young as Jack. From a behind-the-scenes standpoint, uh, the design on the two children is that they're supposed to be half-human and half-Twi'lek. Uh, however, their father has definitely not been around long enough for them to be as old as they are. Let's talk about Laquane's timeline. Well, genetically, the clones mature much faster, right? So wouldn't you think that would be like a hereditary trait? He tells the story of his desertion to Rex, and he says he deserts after the Battle of Geonosis. So where is that in the Star Wars timeline relative to where we are now? So the first Battle of Geonosis is 22 years before the Battle of Yavin. This episode occurs 21 years before the Battle of Yavin. So if you really maximize things and play around with the timeline, this could maybe be like 18 months later. Yeah, so I think <laughs> we're left with a couple options, right? One is, one is these are his adopted children. Uh, or one is he's lying to Rex about his desertion. Uh, well, he can't really be from significantly before the first battle of Geonosis, because that's the first time they actually get deployed. I mean, Cut definitely looked more weathered than Rex did. I think you're right. Yeah, his his male pattern baldness has advanced a little bit further. Yeah, like he, he definitely was more weathered. Like maybe he was an earlier generation than rex so well we, we kind of skipped over some stuff here so uh remind us real quick what, why is rex here it's it's good to know that clone trooper armor can somehow stop uh sniper bolts to center mass just fine but literally nothing else uh to be fair rex did have a non-standard gorget that probably diffused things it's like the u.s army having uh gofundmes for armor uh, you know, because you go to the clone war with the clone army you have, not the clone army you want. Well, this isn't the only indication we have in this episode that 
uh, separatist weaponry is maybe not completely up to snuff. Grievous has like a general contempt for his troops. Like they have a weakness. And so you have all of these, these droids who are just like dying on him. And he just, you know, he just like, what he's doing is he just, he just chops one in half. For having the temerity to suggest that perhaps <laughs> they could ride one of the a space cows instead of Grievous's luggage. Which I guess must be nothing but capes, right? <laughs> Funny, he doesn't look druish. Yes, but like Grievous, who would trade everything for just a little bit more, does not understand B1 droids who would take this kind of abuse sitting down. Does, does that mean that we have actual confirmation that the droids are programmed to be this terrible? <laughs> well, it does seem like they're malingering. They're like, yeah, we're out of batteries. And he kills one and the rest of them are like, oh, okay, I guess we'll just keep walking, which is not how batteries work. <laughs> well, I so I, I'm going to say there's a counterpoint in this episode. There's the two B1 droids when, when Grievous finally gets to the uh, the escape pod and you have those two B1 droids who did not like set off their emergency transponder and they were obviously like trying to make a getaway. Like they were the, uh, they were the cut versions of the droids and they were just like, listen, we have a love that dare not speak its name and maybe we can just escape onto this planet and start a family. And Grievous just like caught them just before they made their getaway. I felt really bad for those guys. If good at nothing else, it is good at making you feel bad for B1 battle droids. <laughs> <laughs> it's nothing a little music can't help. Well, back back at the farm, we have kind of a, a nice moment where we I gotta give it partial credit on passing the Bechdel test. Sue is uh, bringing the clones in general some some food and drink. This is before the the rest of the ones who aren't Rex light out. Her daughter comes in and they exchange a line or two of dialogue. Uh, the, the kid is I, I really like the writing on the kids in this episode, like. So Sue has entered with the plate and then the kid's toy comes flying in and then the kid comes in after the toy and Sue's like, uh, told you to stay inside. And the kid's like, oh, I couldn't help it. The toy got away from me, which is, you know, how kids are. I thought that the uh, kids were good in the uh, in the cornfield when they turn on the, you know, spoiler alert, the uh, commando droids. And instead we, of we being concerned, spoiler alert things from this episode. I already, already covered <laughs> Fair enough. everything that happens in this episode. Fair enough. The, they're less concerned with uh, escaping with their lives than assigning blame. And I was like, as a, as a sibling myself, I was like, yeah, that scans. That's some fantastic writing right there. Note to self: Think of new favorite thing between now and end of episode. <laughs> oh, Rex kind of stays in the barn. And a shadowy presence, right, approaches and disarms him. And hey, it's Cut Laquane. And earlier we got a little foreshadowing here that Jack indicates that Rex looks just like his dad. And indeed, Laquane appears to be a clone. Surprise. So they have a, the two of them have a pretty interesting conversation. And for this, I'd like to go to GM Corn real quick. So greetings. It's a pleasure to meet you. Let's say that you're playing in your weekly Star Wars game and you put your characters in a difficult position where they're facing off against someone who is ideologically opposed to them. But one of your players, rather than shooting them as they are clearly supposed to, wants to deprogram a cult member. What skills do you think they would use against NPC Rex here? Is, is fast talk a West End Games skill? This feels like it would go under perception. So I actually started reading about how to deprogram 
deprogram people. And it was like a lot of Socratic method. You have a name rather than a number, Captain. Why is that? And empathy, like trying to build connections, like... Well, how would you know? Because I am as close to you as any life form can be. So much of, like, culty stuff is about uh, separating you from your sort of support network. And the deprogramming was all about trying to build those relationships back and build trust and make those connections so that they can start questioning for themselves. I've seen how you look at my family, our home. You've thought about what your life could look like if you would also leave the army, choose a life you want. Cut is asking Rex a lot of questions rather than challenging him directly on stuff. The first thing that Rex does with Cut is aggressively ask him what his number is. And Cut responds, you know, oh, uh, hi, I'm Cut Laquane. And then at dinner, Cut asks Rex what his number is. And Rex is like, oh, I have a name too. It's Rex. And I thought this was really like a master stroke of deprogramming. And he's trying to draw draw out of Rex the fact that you have a numeric designation. Why do you think it is that you refer to yourself by name? Like that maybe means something. The coup de gras here in his cult deprogramming is he says it to his child, but he's saying it at Rex, which is that you can do anything in your life that you want to. And then his next move is to ask Rex to play a game of Dejaric. He pivots from telling Rex he can do whatever he wants to playing a game where you manipulate pieces on a board who have no free will. And I think he's really trying to get Rex to think about the symbolism here. Oh, no. Rex definitely got what was going on because he got very, very sad. Slick from the Hidden Enemy wanted freedom and the same amount of money that Lone Star wanted in Spaceballs. Cut. He has a very poignant line where he says he wanted to choose not to kill for a living. Do the clones get paid? Of course they don't. Don't be ridiculous. No. <laughs> yeah, there was some really dark stuff in this episode we skipped over about like uh, eugenics. And when Rex sees Cut, like the first thing he says is, you betrayed your oath. And it's like, well, how how do you know that? How do you know he took the oath? Well, also, it presumes that you know, the clones can make an oath in good faith. Well, I don't think it presumes that. I, 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 think, I think it's just that... They, we're all grown and trained the same way and we all take the same oath because that's how the clones work. Yeah, but can you can you take an oath if you are a slave soldier? Like, does it mean anything? From a humanist viewpoint of human rights, no, obviously that oath would not be binding <laughs> upon you. Uh, but this is a slave army genetically engineered by a Sith Lord. So uh, maybe the same standards don't apply. If they do end up in like the people's court or judge Judy's courtroom, uh, I don't think it would hold up because technically they're minors. So they're not legally able to enter into an agreement. Uh, Sue, on the other hand, is going to jail for a long time. Exactly. <laughs> oh, boy. Look, they're not Cut's natural kids, so we don't know what their relationship is like. It is entirely possible that Sue worked in the clone factory. They fell in love there, and then he met up with her after she, you know, bought the farm. You're adding a, a workplace sexual harassment allegation to the other crimes? I feel like I should really note that there is some, some voice of the author stuff here. Uh, Pablo Hidalgo from, from Lucasfilm Story Group has said that these are not Cut's children in the biological sense. Oh, has he really? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right, oh, then well, thank, let's move on. Thank God for that. 
they are, however, uh, as a formalism, supposed to be half human and half Twi'lek. So I, I guess Sue found another friend before she met Cut. Ja- was it Django? That I have no information on. So genetically, Cut is their dad. I suppose we can continue the fan fiction. So she did work at the Clone Factory on Kamino. Uh, she was friends with Django. She had kids with Django. That was how Django got the idea that he wanted a kid of his own, but he didn't want to hang out with Sue anymore. He was done with that. He's a nomad. So he has the Kaminoans make Boba Fett for him. None of those messy entanglements from hanging out with the Twi'lek. So we got into our literatica. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Join us for our forthcoming slash fic podcast. <laughs> We talk about the Omega verse. It'll be fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, dear. Um, so slick wants money and freedom cut wants to not kill for a living. Rex actually gets a line, a couple lines here where he says what he wants. He's part of the most significant moment in galactic history. And if the, the stakes of failure are your children cut and everyone's children are going to live under an unimaginable evil. Cut was on Geonosis. He was about to be murdered and he took off. Like he stared into the existential void and he made a choice, right? He said, I I don't want this and I can do something about it. And he sort of took that agency. And in the same way, Rex is doing the same thing. He's seeing that there is this monstrous evil coming down the pike and even though he could, you know, he could make the choice that Cut did where he runs away and, you know, like has some personal gratification, he's instead willing to stand up. He becomes a real boy at this point where he says, I don't have to do this, but I choose to do this because I understand the stakes and I know that there's a personal cost to me, but I'm still willing to stand up and, and do the thing. But he also comes to the realization that he can make his choice, and that doesn't mean he has to make the choice for other people. He, at the end, decides to, you know, uh, have not noticed the fact that that Cut is still here and doesn't have to report him to his superiors. He's He is happy and understanding that his choice is his choice, and that's what makes him him, but someone else gets to make their own choice. Everyone told me not to stroll on that beach. Said seagulls gonna come, put me in the coconut, and they did, and they did. The fortune cookie for this episode is, it is the quest for honor that makes one honorable. And I kind of like this and how it fits in at the end here. This is not, perhaps, as we go back over these, we will learn that we were just not operating on a high enough level for the Jedi fortune cookies. That That's not it. For this one, I think it actually <laughs> does work. I think it's a good analysis of where rex winds up at the end of this episode he is he is taking the journey towards towards self-understanding and understanding of the plight of sapient beings uh and you know he has taken his first step into a larger world as it were by deciding that he can leave cut that his honor does not demand him to report cut to the authorities, but he can leave him here with his family to, to live his life. And by the same token that cut can be honorable. So we're talking about how great they are. So what was your favorite part? Uh, for me, uh, it was getting um, the character growth. So uh, we got some insight into, General Grievous uh, and his motivations. 
Um, and Rex actually had to make a choice and saw that there were options to him. And he, instead of just being a robot like child soldier, he actually said, I can choose not to do this, but I choose to do this. And that makes all the difference in the world. Um, this, these were these were just um, these were just good episodes. Like I, I thoroughly enjoyed them. I would say for me, the uh, my favorite moment is probably just Anakin coming out of Lightspeed. Um, it again, it was just really cinematic. It's not something we've seen before. I don't know if it fully plays in you know the rest of the universe in terms of exactly that's how coming out of hyperspace works but i liked it it was cool um and again it just reminded me uh along with drew's uh color palette comment earlier again just the animators are you know quite often the heroes of this show i think my favorite part might be the the apparent story inversion in the deserter where, where we make the, the side story, our, our main story, our, our title episode. I like that we focused a story on, on side characters, on, on the little people, if as it were, um, you know, folks who are being affected by the war rather than in the war or, or people who have decided the the war is not for them anymore and made a story about how those people affect our heroes, especially because our heroes don't tend to have families themselves, uh, giving them a giving them a example of what they could be missing and what they are missing by being in the war and and making decisions appropriately based on that either way uh is a really nice character moment uh and i should probably also add for folks who are not uh insanely into the expanded universe that in a canonical novel aftermath by chuck wendig set after uh, return of the jedi uh there is a scene on salukamai where uh, someone refers to the laquane family and old man cut so he he manages to to make it through this whole crazy thing my favorite part was as as previously nerd typed by drew the uh the siblings who upon you know creating a disastrous calamity immediately begin assigning blame to one another but i think my my backup favorite part would be where cut is telling rex sadly the story of his desertion wherein his unit was murdered one by one and it haunts him to this day and then <laughs> then the camera pans over to his wife and two kids sitting at the hearth listening to this whole thing and i'm like <laughs> um time and place awesome Join us next time when we cover Season 2, Episode 11, Lightsaber Lost. You can follow us at Closing Crawl on Twitter. If you like the show and want to help us, give us a rating on iTunes. And thanks, as always, to Bad Lip Reading for our intro and bumper music. Wait, wait, I'm I'm sorry, I, I have to interrupt. Did, did we say something is not as a brack racial trait using Eath Coth as one example and Darth Maul as the other example? Indeed we did. But but they're both Sabrak? They are both Sabrak. 
So Darth Maul would do the good thing and one wouldn't. I'm confused. Yeah. So Darth Maul uh, in episode one starts throwing around like debris to open doors so he doesn't have to take his eyes off of uh, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, which, as Matt Hayward once said, was outside the box thinking. Eve Koth, on the other hand, just sits there and lets his entire crew get slaughtered. Not outside the box thinking. So it's not a racial trait because one of them possesses it, and they would both they would both possess it. Yeah. I, got I it. think I solved the story problem. <laughs> Wait, how, how, Sorry how tall to make you is explain Eve all that. Brother I'm again? An idiot. He's four feet taller, right? Okay, so two trains leave different stations at the same time, traveling in opposite directions. I'm gonna need a pen and paper. Hold on. <laughs> but wait, what if one of them is Obi Wan Kenobi riding a lizard? <laughs> well, he gets there first. All right, cool. Uh, man, I was actually proud of that joke, but not anymore. It just completely flew past my head. Apparently, <laughs> am I, I too hip for the room? <laughs> Yeah, that one we could fix in post. <laughs> collectively, collectively, we all made it better. It's fine. <laughs> that was a team effort. High no, five. Team venture. Yeah, high five into the camera, even though we're not video recording. 